I'm Susan Branscom, and this is Leading She. I was guided by I wanted to be a good mother, I wanted to be a good wife, I wanted to be a good professional, and I didn't want any of those to drop at the expense of the others. Julia Poston is the managing partner of the EY office of Cincinnati and one of the top-ranking women in our city. She leads with grace and purpose. Julia is the consummate professional. We talk about blind spots around gender bias and emphasizing diversity within her company. This is a delightful conversation, including topics around work-life balance and setting boundaries for how we are treated. Enjoy this podcast with Julia Poston of EY. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Excited to have you here. Uh, I'm going to start by just asking you what your position is with EY, and I know you're managing partner, so you're the head person there. You've been there a long time, but kind of where you started in in your career and uh, how you ended up there and what your responsibilities are. Sure, happy to. So like many um, accounting graduates, I graduated um, with a BS in accounting from Miami University and um, went to work for one of the big eight accounting firms. At the time, there were eight, there are four now. And I actually started at Arthur Anderson and then about 17 years ago came over here to Ernst & Young. And I've been a partner in the assurance and audit practice um, for many years, 20-some years, which means I serve clients. Um, and I was asked to take the managing partner role of our office here in Cincinnati about nine years ago. And that means that I oversee a little little shy of 400 people here in Cincinnati in four different divisions, if you will, Mm -hmm. our audit, tax, transactions, and advisory practice. Mm -hmm. Used to be that, I remember when the big eight were like the accounting firms, that they did mostly accounting and audits. And accounting firms really do so many other things these days, Mm -hmm. advisory, consulting kind of things. So tell me about those services. Yeah, it's... It's actually a lot of fun because if you think about kind of serving the needs of a business, um, it's it's hard to just serve one area and really deliver the value that they need. Usually when a client, for example, is going to do a transaction, they need tax help um, and advice. They need advice on risk um, as well as financial accounting. So we try to deliver, you know, whatever the services are that our clients need. Um, sometimes it may be just one service, but sometimes it's all four. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. to do that. Great. Yeah, tell me a little about your personal life, uh, where you grew up, uh, what what uh, growing up was like, uh, siblings, sure. uh, where you went to school. Sure, sure. So I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father was getting his doctorate at Harvard at the time mm. and um, lived in New England for a while as he was finishing his schooling and then worked in the New England kind of Boston area. Um I like to tell people I'm an expert on brothers because I have every kind of brother you can have. I have an older brother, a twin brother, and a younger brother, um, and no sisters. So we lived in uh, New England again. Um, you know, as a child, we moved down to Houston, Texas, when my twin brother and I were about ten. My dad taught at Rice University there. Okay. My parents decided they didn't want to. Um, raised family in Houston um, at that time, and my father took a teaching job up at Miami University. And so we moved uh, when I was uh, in school to, when I was in high school to Oxford. Um, So I have, um, you know, besides my career progression, I met my husband 27 years ago, (laughs) and we have three children, Rachel, who is 26, Brian, who's almost 23, and Nicholas, who is almost 20. 
Great. Now, did your parents, did they stay married? Yeah. You know, they actually, um, upon leaving Houston, um, they actually divorced very amicably, but nevertheless divorced. And my mom had dropped out of school when they moved to to Boston or to Cambridge. Um, And so when we moved from Houston to to Oxford, um, my mom really wanted to, to start her career, and my father was incredibly supportive of that. But as a result, they made a collective decision for us kids to live with my dad in Oxford mm-hmm. in a smaller town. Um, so, uh, again, a little bit unusual. I grew up in a house of all boys. Sounds like it. If you lived with your dad and your brothers, yep. it was Julia and the guys, and right? And the guys, which was great. It was it great? Was, <laughs> it was fantastic. It doesn't mean we didn't have some... Some uh, fights from time to time, but right. it was great. Because in, and in some respects, of course, I didn't know at that time that I would go into the business world, which is certainly still male-dominated. But I feel like that was a good preparation um, mm-hmm. to go into that kind of line of business. How so? What did you learn living and with with all the men? Yeah. And, and how, did, how did that help you in a male-dominated field? Yeah. You know, I think um, a couple things. One is, um, I think I kind of went into business a little bit gender blind. Um, didn't really, you know, have any preconceived ideas. I mean, I knew that that the accounting field and, and the big eight firms in particular were certainly much more male dominated, as are our clients in terms of the leadership within the businesses. Um, but that wasn't something that I thought much about. So I'd say mm-hmm. I, I came into it very gender blind. Um, without any preconceived ideas. But I also, you know, like anybody that has any siblings, you know that each person is a little different. So I I had years of experience, you know, working my, with my three brothers or growing up with my three brothers that all have different personalities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all got along on, you know, in different ways. And so I think it was just a good um, introduction to just having relationships that are sincere and authentic, irrespective of, um, gender. I would tell you that as a young child um, living in a house with, you know, my father and my three brothers, I did take on a lot of traditional kind of female, female roles, roles. Mm-hmm. perhaps a lot earlier than some. So mm-hmm. I was primarily the the cook. Um, I did you know many of the domestic chores. Although my father was an incredible supporter of women, um, and he never differentiated between me and my three brothers as to you know, who who needed to do chores and, and what each of us could be. We all had the same opportunities to choose our careers and mm-hmm. choose our schools and those kind yeah. of things. Sounds like he was pretty uh, evolved uh, liberally in terms of gender, uh, because you came into business gender neutral. And mm-hmm. if you're raised by a sexist father, that's not going to happen. So he yeah. didn't treat you and your twin brother any differently? No differently wow. at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. He was terrific. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. That's great. One of the questions I have for you is uh, you began, I don't know how many years ago this was, uh, the Cincinnati Women's Executive Forum, mm-hmm. and it's a group of really kind of powerhouse women in, in the city, uh, really movers and shakers and some top executives. Tell me what was behind your mission there and wanting to start that group. Sure, sure. So when I became the managing partner of, of EY here in Cincinnati, um, again, about nine years ago or so, um, one of the first things that I did was said, you know, where are the other kind of women CEOs? Although we don't use the title CEO, managing partner is our equivalent. I wanted to understand where kind of my peers were 
um, you know, did was there an organization that they belonged to that I could just get to know some of them, both from a business standpoint, but even just from a personal standpoint, to um, get to know and, you know, share experiences, etc. Mm-hmm. And as I asked around, um, you know, to some of the women executives that I knew in town, the answer kept coming back, there isn't one. And yes, there are certain women's leadership groups within some of the not-for-profits, you know, the United Way, Arts Wave, etc., but none that were just purely for the purpose of getting to know one another and not a, a, a further philanthropic or what have you mm-hmm. purpose. So I said, well, then we should probably start one. And so I gathered a group of women, and for the better part of a year, maybe even a year and a half, um, we spent a lot of time trying to compile the list of women executives in the community because one did not exist. Hmm. And um, we did that and then launched it. And our mission is really to just, um, again, um, know one another, share experiences, welcome other women that may come to our community or Mm -hmm. certainly get promoted into the CEO ranks um, and just kind of create that network. Um, it has been an incredible group. It, we're probably up to 80, 85 um, women now that are CEOs, both in business and in the not-for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have criteria in terms of the size of, of organizations, that kind of thing. But it is a low-effort, high-value kind of mm. organization. Right. So really, great. it's kind of like I kind of see it as so many men gather in organizations like that, and they they. You know, either it's a small little group. Some of them we don't even hear about. And you're mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, you're in a group over, you have like a lunch group? or Yeah, it's a bunch of guys that get together. And yeah. so this is sort of like, I don't want to say an old girls club, but it was kind of, it's kind of like, hey, let's form our own group yeah. and uh, collaborate, network, share business, share experiences. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's exactly, and, and I have flippantly kind of said it was creating the old girls network, although... Our, our age range is significant. Yes. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. And um, it has been, you know, a place where um, we support one another when there's challenges. Um, they aren't always challenges just because we're women. Um, they're just business challenges or personal mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times balancing, you know, work and, and family life is, is often a topic um, that women, you know, will share about. And it's not very structured. It's really just a... Pretty informal. Very informal. Yeah. How often do you get together? How often do you meet? Yeah. We meet um, kind of formally once a quarter. Um, and then we have some informal sort of impromptu things um, on the off kind of months. And then we do do a um, retreat that that we go out of town for a weekend. And what I've come to learn from that is, you know, when you go out of town with people, you really get to know them deeply. That's true. And I do think that actually that's something that um, I know a lot of my male counterparts have have belonged to various clubs um, that they might go on a weekend golf outing, mm-hmm. and they do come back with really deep friendships with the people that they're with. And right. so this has been a, a way for us to really get to know one another mm-hmm. um, on a much more deep and, and personal basis. And frankly, it's it's not as common with women as it is men in that uh, they go on hunting trips, golf trips, and they're able to bond and develop relationships, which translates into business, you mm-hmm. know, because that's what we're doing, developing relationships. And often it's, you know, for golf trips with, with women, it, you know, sometimes it's hard to have, you know, women, although I just went on a golf trip in Florida, I think I told you about it, mm-hmm. where I was the only woman. 
and uh, can be done. I'm not sure I'm going to go to on a hunting trip or even be invited to that, although I've done that too. But um, yeah, so you do. You get to know people because you're, you know, you're uh, off-site, you know, you're housed in the same quarter. So you're developing relationships. And when you have a situation where you think, I wonder if so-and-so might know somebody that I could talk to or help me with this issue, you've got a relationship with her. Exactly. Right? I mean, I think we come back from those things with sort of an unwritten understanding that if one of the, you know, a member of the Cincinnati Women's Executive Forum calls, you always take that call. Yeah. There, there's a sisterhood that has been developed. That's really great. great. That's great. And then with EY, um, you're a member of the Gender Equity Task Force and Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And I wonder about that. What what was the purpose of the development <clears throat> of that committee? And mm-hmm. What, it, what is the mission there? When I started my career, again, 35 years ago, mm-hmm. um, all of the firms, um, you know, significantly male-dominated and lost women, um, usually four or five years into their career, often when they were thinking about starting a family. And um, both of the firms that I have been fortunate to work with, Arthur Anderson and EY, um, have a keen eye on that is such a, a loss of talent in the organization. And quite frankly, to continue to grow our you know, business, we have to have a talent pool that is representative of you know, the talent pool at large. And we need to you know, be really bringing more diverse points of view into our organization as we serve clients. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, it's easy to say that's what we want to do. We want to be diverse and we want to be inclusive. But it doesn't necessarily naturally happen, and there's all kinds of, you know, kind of biases or, or processes, et cetera, that have bias in them. And so the firm really recognized we need to pay more attention and invest more in this. And so they established some of these committees and and um, groups to help look at those processes and then actually hold um, our partners accountable to some of those things that are important. So our... Um, we have spent time in the offices throughout the firm trying to understand, you know, what are their hiring practices, their retention practices as it relates to both women and, and minorities, and how can we improve on those so that, quite frankly, we ultimately have more women and minorities in leadership. You know, we kind of tend to believe that once the leadership looks you know how Different we want than, it than white the, guys, yeah, right? Then the rest of the, the yeah. organization probably looks that way. So yeah. we're still working on that, um, and but we've made enormous strides. And oh, that's I'm really that's wonderful. Proud to say that. Yeah, to really have an initiative, a committee that's mm-hmm. responsible for it, and yeah. to make sure that uh, because if it's all run by white males, you know, you don't really you lose touch with what you know people that are you know, of color, uh, women, uh, Mm -hmm. what their needs are and how they see things. And people tend to want to hire people that look like them. And so if you've got women and and people of color in those positions, they are more likely to, you know, to look at diversity in a a much different way. That's right. And, you know, at at its core, it's a diversity of thought. And we're Mm -hmm. in a client service business. So we are best when we have the broadest, most diverse kind of points of view, we can bring better solutions to our clients um, if we do that. And quite frankly, I'll I'll never forget many years ago, one of the first times that we had the opportunity to um, propose on a project at P&G, which, you know, I think everyone would acknowledge is an incredibly 
um, strong, diverse mm-hmm. organization. Procter Gamble here, yeah. here in Sorry. Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we kind of looked around at the team that we initially pulled together and looked around and said, nope, we, we missed the mark here. We yeah. need to, you know, even if it need means looking outside of certain boundaries, mm-hmm. we need to find that diverse talent that certainly, you know, um, matches up with the client. our clients. Right. And the beauty, too, I think, is although our firm um, has been led by, you know, men, which is not a negative, um, our men at the at the helm of this organization um, have lived and breathed um, this. They understand both the business and the and the you know kind of more social and personal um, side of you know the case for diversity and inclusion, and. Um, so, you know, again, one could say for us, which we are we are nothing but talent. We don't have widgets that we make. We just have talent. It's a business imperative that we mm-hmm. make this work. And our leaders have been front and center on that. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't say this past year, um, we promoted a woman to be the managing partner of all of the Americas, oh. which is a kind of second spot in the firm. In the whole company. Yeah. And you guys are huge. How many people do you employ? We get about 275,000 globally oh, now. Wow. So yeah. you've got a woman in the top spot, one of the top spots. Yeah, over the Americas. That's great. really great. Yeah. yeah. Um, you and I both uh, have children. And I'm just curious, uh, I know you have three children. And when you decided to start a family, um, you had made a decision to cut back. And tell me about that process, you know, cutting back your hours as you started the family and wanted to have more more time with your family and, sure. uh, and still work. Sure. So when I started my career at um, Arthur Anderson, which, again, fabulous, fabulous firm, um, I didn't think that I would stay in this career long term because my perception was that I couldn't balance both family and work. And perhaps because my parents split when I was young, I always had in my mind that I wanted to have a family, I, and I wanted to, to stay married, um, and I also wanted to have a career. And um, so, again, I didn't think that this would be the long-term career for me because it seemed like women usually left when they were ready to have a family. Mm-hmm. But as it turned out, um, I loved the work. Um, the, the, what we do is intellectually challenging and stimulating a lot of technical work, but a lot of relationship building with clients as well. And so when my husband and I got married and decided that um, we wanted to start a family, I kind of scratched my head and said, gosh, I love what I'm doing. And actually, I don't think that I want to leave. Um, And again, this was probably eight years into my career. So I didn't leave at the four or five year mark that it seemed like most women did. Um, But I also knew I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to raise, I wanted my husband and I to raise our children and not not someone else. So Mm -hmm. at that time, there weren't really any policies around flexibility. So I went to the partners that I worked for at, at Arthur Anderson and said, you know, I want to have a family, but, you know, I can't work at the same level that I am now and be able to have that balance. And it was really kind of great because although there weren't policies, they let me kind of, um, you know, tell them what it was I thought I needed. And, and we worked together to kind of design something that worked. So I went on what what is now called and much more formalized a flexible work arrangement where I reduced my schedule to 80%. And that allowed me to take basically Fridays off okay. where I could spend those Fridays with my children. And again, I had three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that was a, a big difference maker for me because I felt like I had additional time to spend with the kids. It um, allowed, you know, a lot more flexibility, quite frankly, on the weekends to be, you know, all together as a family. Um, and it was just a game changer for me. And I actually did a flexible work arrangement for 16 years. I did wow. it at Arthur Anderson. And actually, when I came to Ernst & Young, um, I also said that I wanted to continue on this uh, uh, flexible work arrangement. My kids were two, four, and six-ish. Oh, boy. And, Those were um, big years. I wanted to do that. Yeah. Um, that's uh, You were really a pioneer uh, at that time. Was that 94? Do I have the year right when yeah. you started it? Yeah. My daughter was born yeah, in 94. Yeah, so 94. And back then, uh, you and I were both uh, been in our careers for probably 14 years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was. And at that time, you know, the Internet was just kind of getting – getting uh i guess some juice we didn't really use email mm-hmm, a lot right. back then right we had voicemail but i don't know that our phones could forward we had these big clunky cell phones <laughs> you know so working outside the office was really not as easy to do and so you know as an accountant early you, you work like you're there monday through friday in saturday mm-hmm, often right. six days you're there at the office you have to be there at the office right. so it wasn't like it was back you know here now yeah. Yeah, it was more difficult. And, um, and so, you know, and really disciplining myself to, to do that and, and not worry about it, it, it was a little unique at that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there were some that may have looked at me with some skepticism about whether I was serious about my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it took the for, for me to realize this is so important. I don't care if some others, you know, may be questioning my commitment. I know that I'm committed to my career. I know I'm committed to my family, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make this work. And again, the partners that I worked for were so terrific about it. And in some respects, you know, you had to work hard and do a good job in order to have those kind of privileges yeah, to earn it. Yeah, and it's the same even now, even though we have very um, a variety of formal kind of flexible work arrangements. Um, it's it's something that you kind of earn. You do a mm-hmm. good job, and as an employer. It's a whole lot better to have a strong performer working 80% load than not have them right. with us. Yeah, when I had my own company, I had a lady that always worked part-time, and she was there at 3 o'clock when her kids got home from school, and child's sick, she's home, but she worked remotely, yeah. and she worked part-time for, I think, 12 years for us. Yeah. Um, so you might have had, a, you know, here's here's a woman who wants to work uh, fewer hours, Um Talk, talk about uh, any kind of pushback or any kind of like, you know, criticism where the guys are saying, well, gosh, you know, Julia's doing this, but I'm working. I'm here five days a week. Is it really fair to me? Mm-hmm. Did it take you off of a career track or anything like that? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Um, I also made it clear if if someone wanted to engage in a conversation with me about this, that I also took a 20% pay cut. So yeah. I wasn't working less hours and being paid the same. There was a commencement commensurate um, decrease in my salary, um, which usually would disarm most people that were criticizing. But one of the debates I think that existed at that time um, was, you know, in our business, there's a typical kind of trajectory to making partner. Okay. And that's kind of the the sort of top level is you, you, you want to work up the ladder to make partner. And, you know, call that around 12 years or so. Um, Now, keep in mind, we're all accountants. So someone could do the math pretty quickly and say, well, if you're only working an 80% load, then you're, are you really working 12 years on that path to partner? And our firm's perspective was, 
you know what? All of our people should be getting meaningful experiences that demonstrate that they're ready to take that next, you know, um, take the next level to partner. And if we provide our our men or women um, who are on flexible work arrangements with the right opportunities and they grow and develop, they can certainly be ready for promotion to partner um, at 12 years, even on an 80% workload. Now, I would be the first to say if you were doing something like 40%, there's probably you're probably not getting the same level of experiences mm-hmm. and development. So I actually um, was uh, was promoted to partner on on track. Um, I actually was promoted when I was on maternity leave, which I <laughs> I, I think is kind of funny. I was yeah. at home on maternity leave when I was promoted to partner. Um, but that again, that was an important. Um, I think it was an important stance of the firm to say, we're not going to create, you know, a different trajectory of your career. We're not going to penalize you mm-hmm. um, because, you know, by the way, you women are still the only ones that can have the baby. So you're the right. ones that, you know, need this flexibility. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I will tell you one story that when I when I came to Ernst & Young as a, as a partner, I had made partner at Arthur Anderson. Um, and I remember one of my partners, who is a dear friend um, still to this day, saying to me one time, and, and he just didn't really think about what the words were that he said. He, he said to me, Joy, I don't know how you do it. I, I just don't know how you can be a great partner and a great mother. And I think he wow. was trying to compliment me, but I actually said to him, you know, what you just said did not resonate very well with me because you actually expressed to me some disbelief that you can actually do both. And I said, I do do both. And you do it very well. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was funny because I remember him coming back to me and saying, I never thought about how that would be, you know, interpreted by you. Um, and I said, you know, I work really hard at both. And, you know, yes, I can do a good job at both. So it's good that he, you said something. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at, uh, I worked at Bank One um, in Dayton, Ohio, I had a very good friend, uh, Ann Phoebus, who she and I had babies the same year. My first baby was uh, 1986. And she had her, her first child in May of 86. And she was. She was different than me in her ambitions, I think, in her career, but she still wanted to work and have responsibility. And uh, she was the pioneer in the bank in that she said, I want to work part-time. And they said, well, you can do that, but you will have to take your officer status away from you. And Mm -hmm. she said, no, I've not done anything to lose my officer status. I want to keep my officer status. And I also want paid vacation. And I want... So she was really the pioneer that said... I, I'm a mother. I want to have more time with my kids as they're growing up, and here's what I want to do. And I shouldn't lose any benefits. Mm-hmm. So she really started a trend there, and this was back in the 80s. So it was even less easy for when yeah. you're away from the office, you're really away from work, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so it was uh, really cool to see it. I continued to work like a dog, you know, 60 <laughs> hours a week with kids, but I had my husband helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well. There's a secret sauce right there. Yeah. Pick a good partner. Pick a good partner. He'll help. But, you know, if, if I can, Susan, you, you just reminded me of something that I think is really important, too, um, that I'm really proud of what EY has done. And this has to do not so much with the flexible work arrangements, but with maternity and paternity benefits. So, you know, back when our maternity benefits were probably similar to many organizations, you know, six weeks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, over time, have increased that substantially to 
um, four months paid um, maternity leave. Um, often women even take more after that. Mm. And um, that has just become kind of accepted, et cetera. Last year, we instituted paternity benefits mm. of up to four months also. Paid? Paid. That's big. That's huge. And and I, what I want to say about how big that is is, is an example. So I can remember some of our male partners saying, our men aren't going to do that. They're not going to take four months off. Well, they actually are. They totally do, and they don't think twice about it. And they work with the firm, obviously, about how, you know, the timing of that and both, you know, it can come after the, let's just say the male works for us, and his wife has a baby, and she has a maternity leave, and then he might have his paternity leave follow hers. Mm-hmm. That gives them a longer runway with the child um, before they go to child care or what have you. But I was in a meeting um maybe six months ago or so, and we were talking through our our managers, which is kind of below the partner level, and we were doing kind of a corn fairy nine box um, assessment of potential, et cetera. And at the end of the meeting, one of our partners said, um, Julia, you know, I just noticed as we went through all of our managers that pro- about 50% of our women are going to be on maternity leave probably in the next year. And I said, John, you're right. You're right. It's about half of our women are going to be on maternity leave. I said, but did you actually take note of how many of our men are going to be taking paternity leave in the next year? And he said, well, no. And I said, you should take note of that as well. And I said, I just want to point out in this room, and this was a room of all of our partners here, I said that today... Still, it is only the women that can have the baby, so that that right. has not changed. But this has now leveled the playing field for men and women that instead of me having a baby and everyone questioning whether I will come back and, the, and my commitment to my career, the same conversation now happens about our males. It should They're going to take it off time, like too. They mi- he missed it. He's like, oh, yeah, the men could be taking time off, too. Yeah. So he, That's right. So he that wasn't something he was accustomed to thinking about. Now he does. So right. we don't have to think about, is Julie going to come back in four months? Is John going to come back in four months? Mm-hmm. They're both going to take the benefits that we you know make available to them, mm-hmm. and we need to stop thinking about whether women are serious about their career right. just because they're the only ones that can take have a baby. Right, and in the eighties and nineties, you know, you and I were, it was really male dominated back then. There are a lot more women that are in this workspace, and companies are saying, "What do we need to do?" You know, right. uh, I interviewed Tilly uh, Hidalgo Lima, and uh, she helped Fifth Third come up with a program that allowed uh, much more compassion by the bank, Fifth mm-hmm. Third, to um, allow women to breastfeed and uh, all kinds of maternity services. So yeah. they're getting it to hang on to them, mm-hmm. you know. Tell me about a time, uh, many stories do you have about when you were the only woman in the room, whether it was early in your career or later, and uh, any stories you have there around gender bias? Sure. Lots. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. We could be here a couple hours. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, the one that I will truly never forget. Um, so I, I, I mentioned my father was such a great supporter of, of um, 
all of us kids, but he was a great supporter of women before it was really in fashion. And I, I remember, and he was a, a religion professor, and I remember mm-hmm. when I told him I was going to go into business, he said to me, oh, Julia, business is so unethical. Maybe, you know, you should do something else. And I said, no, Dad, you know, I think I think you're going to, I'm going to show you that it's actually a, a, a good you know, it is ethical that there's good behaviors. So I was with the firm for about three years, and I had a client that um, was kind of challenging. And the the CFO and the controller that we worked with um, on the engagement were were particularly challenging. And at the end of the um, engagement, we went in for kind of our wrap up meeting, if you will. And it was the partner on the account, the uh, manager on the account, and myself as a senior, and these these two from the client, the CFO and the controller. And we sat down, and and the CFO said, before we get started, would anybody like some coffee? And our partner said, "Um, yeah, that'd be great. Our manager said, terrific, that'd be great. He looked at me, and I said, no, thanks, I I don't drink coffee. And then he just looked me square in the eye, and he said, well, Julia, you're the only female in the room. You'll need to go get the coffee. And I remember thinking to myself, I think my dad came into my head first, which was, my dad would be really disappointed in me if I went and got that coffee. <laughs> and then I looked over the partner and the manager, and I thought, there's a really good chance I might get fired if I just say what I want to say. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, instinctively, just kind of out of my mouth came the, the, the words of, I'm sorry, Jerry, you must not have heard me. I don't drink coffee. And then I just kind of held my breath, and I sort of thought I was going to throw up. Um, fortunately, <laughs> How old were you? I was 25. Oh, that's bold. Yeah. And fortunately, the partner um, kind of stepped up and said, hey, you don't talk to women like that in this day and age, which I still think is kind of funny because that was a long time ago. And he said, and you certainly don't talk to this, this, um, this woman that way. I'll go get the coffee. So the partner literally got up and went and got the coffee for everybody. We had the rest of our meeting. And then as we left, he said to me, um, Julie, I want you to know something. And I said, what? And he said, we're going to fire that client. We're not going to work with that client anymore after we finish issuing our report um, because that's not the kind of clients that we work with. Mm -hmm. And I remember driving home that night and calling my dad and telling him, dad, this is what happened today. This is the good ethical principles that a business can have. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of my early, early on experiences with very blatant bias. I mean, I, I really couldn't imagine that somebody would actually say that in a, in a business setting, um, but it did happen ex- exactly as I as yeah. I described it. And that's that's ethics, if you ask me. If mm. you know, I've had plenty of clients over the years that where it's like they did something where it was really like really unfair mm-hmm. and really not right, yeah. and I just had to say, I don't have to work with them. Right. You know, I don't have to work with them, and I choose not to. Tell me about any time that your company. As they assemble a team to go out to, you know, to, to take on an assignment or bid on an assignment, what are the things that have you, you've learned, you've seen to make sure that the team is well represented from a diversity standpoint? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think there are there blind spots that men have if they're the team leaders around who to include in that team? Or what, what have you seen? Yeah. Well, that kind of goes to your question early on in the conversation here about. Um, how we look at our processes and and try to rid them of you know bias. Um, so when we when we schedule people on engagements, that's a really critical activity that 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 can often dictate one's career. Or in other words, if you're working on 
challenging um, engagements that have really, you know, big challenging issues for a client that, that you know, are complex, et cetera, versus maybe working on a project that is much more mundane, um, you're going to grow and develop a lot more on those really difficult projects. Um, and so if, and I'll go back to really both women in, in our minorities, if they are not scheduled on, you know, a, a fair share of, of complex engagements, they may not get the development that they need to continue to mm-hmm. progress with the firm. And I think that historically, we've had a problem with um, kind of sameness, I call it, wanting to work, and you could probably apply this if it was, if it was a female-dominated firm too, wanting to work with people who are very much like you. It's easier. It requires less time to, you know, explain things, et cetera. You just kind of connect because you're very similar. But again, we know that that's not necessarily getting really good broad perspective and right. thinking on an issue. Sure. So we have have worked very hard to to make sure that our processes for selecting engagement teams are not just with the engagement team leader, because again, he or she could select, you know, people that are just same to them. Mm-hmm. And that we just can't have because, again, it, it hinders the development of people who aren't selected. So that favoritism really gets in the way of um, really having diverse and inclusive teams. So we have people who are really in charge of um, scheduling our engagements. The partner, the lead partner may have you know, express a point of view. This is kind of the talent that I need on it. Um, but they aren't responsible for going and picking, if you will, the same, you know, kind of people, their favorites over and over again. We mm-hmm. really try to make sure that that's a process that sits outside them mm-hmm. so that it can be um, one that, that kind of feeds more to a diverse team. Mm-hmm. It's really progressive uh, yeah. because, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to hire my buddy over here. My buddy is going to and I are going to. And that's the basis of... Uh, the the lack of advancement opportunities for women and minorities mm-hmm. is because it's like you know you you tend to hire and, and and bring your team in that people that are like you yeah you know? yeah and you know the other thing I think that still exists and again we just have to combat these things we just have to work against them and know that they're out there um, is you know when we look at promotions. Um, I mean, over my career, I can think of so many times sitting in kind of performance review committee meetings where we're talking about perhaps two equally um, talented individuals, one male, one female, and there's just a natural thing that happens where, um, as it relates to the woman, there'll, there'll be discussion of, well, she hasn't really demonstrated you know, that she can work in the boardroom yet or that, you know, this or, you know, effective presentation skills on this or this, yet a same competent male will will say he's got the potential, you know, he's got the potential. So it's almost like we're looking at women to prove that they have done what is needed for that promotion, yet we look at men as having the potential, whether they have demonstrated or not. So we, again, kind of disrupt those processes a little bit by having kind of independent observers Mm -hmm. in our performance um, review committees to call out um, any of those unintentional kind of biases. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like you're looking, they're looking at the woman like reasons to turn her down, mm -hmm. like, she doesn't quite measure up, but this guy, you Mm -hmm. know. Yeah, and there's some real blind spots there. Yeah, and and we've also, um, I think, progressively um, made some additional investments. Let's say that that is true. Let's say that the woman hasn't had, 
you know, certain experiences, et cetera, again, is perfectly, you know, bright and, and, and all the other competencies. Um, we have had a number of programs that we have designed specifically for women and our, um, you know, underrepresented minorities to help provide those gaps that they might have in experiences so that they can continue on that trajectory to promotion. And we say it loud and proud that we are differentially investing in women and minorities for those, you know, in those instances, because we do need more Mm -hmm. women and minorities at the top in the partnership. Once we've arrived and we've got the right to, we won't need to do those things. But we do, um, we do say, you know, we don't hide it. It's not a secret. Mm-hmm. We basically say we have some programs that we make differential investments in women and minorities. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. You and I came into our careers about the same time. I think mine was 1980, and you were 1982, mm-hmm. many years ago. <laughs> um, and who's counting? <laughs> yeah, who's counting? Uh, how, how did you you had said that you came into the business world somewhat naive, and I, w- I would say I did too. Uh, what do you wish you knew back then that you know now? What kind of wisdom do you wish you could take uh, to the business world back then? Yeah, you know, I think, um, and, and particularly some of the counsel that I give to our younger women, or even my daughter, um, is to um, you know, it's a, it's a combination of knowing yourself and knowing what, what you want and what you can do, but also letting yourself be stretched. And I think about my career, and there were times that maybe the, the firm asked me to, to take a stretch assignment that I actually thought, gosh, I, I don't know if I can do all of this. I've got three children, a husband who's got a, you know, a, a significant job, and I'm not sure that I can do it. Um, but as I think about where my career has gone, it's usually been um, the firm and largely men because it is still you know more males ahead of you know me mm-hmm. than than not um, that that pulled me and stretched me and and you know kind of promoted me if you will to to take on things. I think that's great and looking for those kind of mentors and understanding that men can be some of your best mentors yeah, too can. is fantastic. But also being comfortable with you you own you and you know what works and sometimes i get worried a little bit about the dialogue of you know just take on everything take on everything take on everything i was guided by i wanted to be a good mother i wanted to be a good wife i wanted to be a good professional and i didn't want any of those to drop at the expense of the others so i think it's a combination of push yourself um you know, ask people to help you. And, and when they do try to push you, know that usually they're right. They see something in you that you may not see that says that you can do that kind of stretch assignment. Mm-hmm. But then also be comfortable if the time is not right right now. So when I became the managing partner here, um, and, and that doesn't go away. So even just nine years ago, um, I had been asked the previous year um, to take this managing partner role. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't the right time for me. And I said to my kind of regional partner, it's just, this is not the right time for me. And he said, um, well, I hope you know, I'm going to stay after you about this. And I'm hoping, you know, that the next time I ask you, you'll, you'll feel like it is the right time. And it was probably about six to nine months later that he came back with um, asking me again. And then it was time. Um, it was time. Then it felt right. Yeah. But you... 
you had the opportunity to have the top spot and you thought, yeah, with everything I've got going on, I don't know if I could really mm-hmm. commit to that right now. Mm-hmm. And then, but six months later, the opportunity presented itself again. And you say, I think yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, you know? because I think we do know that our male counterparts are more likely to say, yes, I'll take that. They do it. We process it maybe a, a bit more right. and we really think about, oh my gosh, what will that exactly mean? And, and again, I don't know if I'm envious or sad for my male counterparts, <laughs> but they usually jump quicker to take those opportunities. So we need to do sort of both. Be, yeah. be bold and take some things and trust that, you know, that, that next big thing that's a little unknown, we can do it. But be comfortable also if, if you know that that's not the right time yeah. or situation right. for you. And there's a theme uh, among these folks I've talked to in the podcast that that is an ongoing thing, that women do not think they're good enough, ready enough to take that next step. And it's great that a, that a man sees that, like, you are ready. We want you to end this spot, but we feel like we need to know everything. And you just have to take the risk that you know yeah. enough and you'll figure the rest out. Yep. You know, yep. I've done it over and over, but I see a lot of women being hesitant yeah. about taking that next step for fear of failure, something won't go right. And it may not, it may not go right, but take a chance. If yeah. you want to advance in your career, take a chance. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Let me end with a um, kind of a little more fun question. Uh, one of the best things in my life, my favorite things to do for joy and cut loose is getting together with girlfriends. How important uh, is that to you? Oh my gosh, it's the best. Maybe because I didn't have any sisters growing up. Um, I love my girlfriends. Yeah, me and too. I often say that my best days either start or end in, in with a, a group of women. Um, it may be you know women in my office that were convening about something. It may be the Cincinnati Women's Executive Forum, mm-hmm. or or who knows what else. But um, gosh, there's just a, a specialness in that, um, and. You know, as someone who's now worked for a long time, it's just so exciting to see so many women in business that um, are doing fantastic things. Mm. I look about at the at the leadership in our community here, not just business, but not for profits and government and other affiliations. And there's just some really incredibly Mm. brilliant, you know, women leading such important things. And uh, I love being a being a part of that. It's 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 good. We've we haven't arrived. You know, we're not done. We're still all working toward a, a more equal. To do. But mm-hmm. we're a lot further ahead. Yes, we are. And thanks for your commitment to it and starting the the women's groups and the thank diversity you. and women uh, uh, committee that you have at EY. It's really wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Congra- congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. It's really Susan. been fun to watch. And uh, thanks for joining me today. It's been great. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Follow us on Instagram at LeadingShe and visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have many great ideas for women leaders. 